the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. So basically, verse 9 and this whole section, he's saying this. God knows how to judge the wicked, and God knows how to rescue the righteous. Because he, he rescued Noah and his family because they humbled themselves. They were right with God. Uh, God rescued Lot and his family. Well, Lot's wife turned back, became a pillar of salt. That's a tragic story. And from that day on, they could never ask for salt at the dinner table. It was a very touchy subject. But anyway... God always rescued the righteous, and he judged the unrighteous. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Peter. Do you ever wonder if wicked people will be punished for their actions? And doesn't it sometimes seem like good people have to struggle through life? In today's message, Pastor Gary will remind you that throughout Scripture, God always rescues the righteous, those who have a relationship with God, and He always judges the wicked, those who follow their own desires. It may be that the wicked are not punished here on earth, but one day they will be punished, and the righteous will be rewarded. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Peter chapter 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. And if you're not equipped enough to know the truth, you are liable to accept what they say at face value. We should always be very careful to search the scriptures to see what is true. Paul commended the Bereans above the Thessalonians because he said the Bereans did always search the scriptures daily to see if what was being said was true. And so they introduced these false uh, uh, teachings, this destructive heresy, secretively because nobody's paying attention. Nobody really knows enough of the truth to discern the truth from the lie. Another thing that he says here about about false teachers, number two, is that they will influence many people to follow them. That's verse two. He said, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. So here they are blaspheming the Lord and the truth and people still follow after them. When Paul was wrapping up his ministry in Acts chapter 20. He called for the Ephesian elders to meet him in Miletus. And when they came to him, 
It was a very, uh, you can read about it in chapter 20 of Acts. I, I'll just quote a couple of verses, but it was a very sentimental moment because he realized I may never see you guys again. It talks about how he knelt down on the beach with them and he prayed and he just hugged their necks and he, and he realized I may never see you again. And there's no record that he ever did because soon thereafter, Paul would be martyred for his faith. And one of the things that he said to the Ephesian elders, he was warning them in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. He said, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. See, false teachers always want a following after themselves. True teachers, in terms of scriptural Bible teachers, want to raise up people who will be true followers of Jesus Christ. And that's the difference. And so Paul warned even the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he says, there are going to be people who arise from the outside and arise from the inside. And he says, these are savage wolves. These are people who just want to destroy the flock and false teachers just simply want to rise up from among your your own numbers to, to win over followers after themselves. And this is what Peter is saying here in in 2 Peter chapter 2. Part of being a false teacher is they always want a following after themselves. The Great Commission compels us to make people followers of Christ, not followers of ourselves. And so, number three, he says false teachers will be judged by God. In verse 3, he says, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words, For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So he's basically saying, don't worry, God's going to take care of of them just like historically he has. Um, Peter then, in the following verses, gives three historical examples of how God didn't let people get away with things, and that God is the ultimate judge, and he's going to take care of these false prophets, these false teachers, just like he historically has taken care of others who have fallen under his judgment. And he talks between verses 4 and 11 in the section following about three major judgments of God. And, he, and, and again, the context is, don't worry, because these false teachers aren't getting away with anything. God takes note, God sees, God hears, God knows what's going on. And he's going to point out to us these three major judgments of God. One was when the angels that sinned were judged. Another example he's going to give is the ancient world of Noah's day. And then the third example he's going to give is Sodom and Gomorrah of Lot's day. So look here at verse 4 where where we read this. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment... Now pause there in the middle of a sentence because he's going to carry on with the second point. But the first point there in verse 4 is he's using the example of angels who sinned against God. Now, he talks about how these angels were cast down to hell. So we need to understand what Scripture says about fallen angels. He's talking about angels who rebelled in the great rebellion with Satan. Lucifer was originally, otherwise known as Satan or the devil, created as an angel who um, had a very honorable position in heaven. But it wasn't honorable enough for him because he craved to be like God. In fact, he desired to be God. And so pride filled his heart and Satan was kicked out of heaven. Well, Revelation tells us that as many as a third of the stars, which is a phrase for angels, as many of a third of the angels in heaven, however many that represents, rebelled with Satan and kind of this coup in heaven. And so when 
they did, they were all kicked out of heaven. Now, the majority of those fallen angels now exist in the spirit realm known as demons. But apparently what scripture teaches is that in God's mercy, the worst of the worst of those demons were not allowed to remain in the spirit realm, but were actually placed in the abyss. Because when Peter writes here, he talks about that they were cast down into hell. Now, in the original Greek language of your New Testament, that is not actually the word Hades. It is actually the word Tartarus. It is the only time that particular Greek word is used in all of the New Testament. And it is telling us about a place that is in the interior of hell that is otherwise known as, in other places of the Bible, the abyss. Now, if you want to compare the Bible with the Bible as the best commentary on the Bible, you can write in the margin right here of 2 Peter chapter 2, write down Luke chapter 8. There's a story that happens in Luke chapter 8 that many of you are familiar with. It's when Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which was known as the region of the Gadarenes. And there on that side of the Galilee was a a man who was possessed by demons. And in Luke chapter 8, it uses the plural, demons. How many does that represent? We don't know. If you're possessed by one demon, that's one demon too many. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? But he had at least multiple demons because there's a plurality in the language. And Jesus gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where in those days, Jews who were known as Hellenistic Jews were living. Now, a Hellenistic Jew, Hellenistic just simply meant the Greek culture. A Hellenistic Jew was someone who wanted to be Jewish, but also worldly at the same time. So what we find happening on that side of the Sea of Galilee is that Jews were raising pigs. Is there a problem with that? Yeah, just a little bit, because pigs are not kosher. It's against the Mosaic law for them to eat pork. By the way, the first time I went to Israel, I was so American. I can tell you, after about three days, I was at the buffet at breakfast time. I was like, where's the bacon? Where's the sausage? (laughs) Hello, I'm in Israel. So on the other side of the Galilee, they're raising pigs because they're Hellenistic Jews. They got one foot in the church, one foot in the world. We don't know anybody like that, but just go with me. Jesus goes over there and, he's, and he confronts this guy who is possessed by demons, plural. And when he addresses the demons in this guy, he says, what is your name? And the demon says, legion. The demon speaks through this guy. It says, legion, for we are many. And the Bible says this guy was all disheveled. He, he was naked. He was running around living in a cemetery. And so this guy, I mean, was just completely overtaken by, by these demonic principalities. And Jesus confronts the demon of this guy. What is your name? And the demon says, legion, for we are many. Now, a legion in the Roman army was a unit of 6,000 6, soldiers. Now, was, was it true that this guy was possessed by 6,000 demons? I don't, I don't know how many demons can get in a person. I have no idea. It could also be that this demon, because, listen, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Demons never tell the truth. So, you know, it could have been two, but he's like, well, we're 6,000. <laughs> you know, liars, all of them. However many was possessing this guy, as I said, one is too many. And so as this conversation is happening, The demons make a request of Jesus in Luke chapter 8. They say to him, we beg you, do not cast us into the abyss, but rather cast us into this herd of swine. 
And Jesus cast them into the herd of swine, but they were begging him, do not cast us into the abyss. Why? Because it's 2 Peter chapter 2. The worst of the worst have been kept in the abyss. So Jesus instead cast them out of this man into that herd of swine. The Bible says the herd of swine went off this cliff into the uh, Sea of Galilee and they all drowned. They committed suicide. All right. Anyway, it's an old joke. Go with me. It became deviled ham, but anyhow. So, and at the same time, what did Jesus do? He's, he, he, like, he, he took the Jews who had one foot in the world and one foot you know, in Judaism, and he's like, I'm going to destroy your little worldly livelihood. That's what he did at the same time. But anyway, these demons were begging him, don't throw us, don't cast us into the abyss, the abusos. It's the same concept behind Tartarus here in chapter 2 of Second Peter. There is a, an abyss where the worst of the worst of demons are kept. In Revelation chapter 9, it tells us that as part of God's judgment upon a God-forsaking world, the Lord is going to release those demons from the abyss in the world in Revelation chapter 9. Now, in my theology, based on the timeline of events, I don't think we're going to be here. I think the church is going to be raptured before that in Revelation chapter 4. Okay, but when you get to Revelation 9, these demons, the worst of worst, are released upon the earth. And so, back here in 2 Peter chapter 2, this is what Peter is referring to. Um, God took care of those fallen angels. He judged them just fine. And judgment is coming to these false teachers as well. And then the other thing that he compares them to, verse 5 and did not, he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. Notice how Noah is referred to here, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So that's the other example that Peter's using here. God's going to take care of these false teachers. He's going to punish them, just like he's punished the angels who sinned against him, just like he judged the ancient world in Noah's day. Only eight people were saved in all. Now, I had a guy uh, years ago who was not a believer, and he uh, would, would want to make appointments with me and, and talk to me about faith and about Christ. And his, one of his main objections to me was uh, the whole concept of Noah and the flood. And he said, I, I have a hard time accepting a God that would wipe out a world and only save eight people. I said, you, you've got, you've got it from, you're looking at it from the wrong angle. You're looking at the end result. You're not looking at God's provision. God provided an ark for as many as wanted to be saved, but they rejected God. The only ones who accepted the gracious provision to be saved by way of the ark was Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their wives. That's the eight people. That's it. So, you know, don't, don't blame God when you see the carnage as the result of rejecting God. Look at God's gracious provision because his desire is for people to be saved. But even though he provides this ark, people decide in that day, I would rather serve myself, I would rather serve my flesh. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6, 5, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And yet he still provided an ark for people to get rescued. So when mankind rejects God and God's gracious provision to be saved, you don't blame God for that. And that, that's the same idea behind when people say, you know, I can't believe that God would send anybody to hell. God doesn't send people to hell. 
We send ourselves there when we reject God's gracious provision, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't put the onus on God. Put the onus on man. God has already gone way and above and beyond what any of us deserve by providing a way to be saved. When we reject that way to be saved, we bring doom to ourselves. See, God wants none to perish, but all to be saved. That's what the Bible says. So he makes a way for people to be saved. When we thumb our nose at God and say, but I reject that. I don't want that. I don't believe in that. Well, then we suffer at our own peril. But God, in his love for the world, makes provision for people to be rescued, to be saved. In this case with Noah, even though every inclination of the heart of man was evil continually, God said, I'll make a way to be saved. And, you know, I love the way that Noah's referred to as a preacher of righteousness because, you know, sometimes, you know, people judge the effectiveness of, of a preacher by how many people got saved. Only eight people in this day. But that's okay because... He was just faithful to do his part, and then God would move in the hearts of people, and people can accept him or reject him. Unfortunately, everybody else rejected him. Only eight were saved. The rest of the world suffered their own judgment for it. And then in verse 6, he makes a third example. He goes, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now, I have to be honest with you, I've never really understood Lot. It's like, You know, when you look at the Genesis account, and and the whole account of Sodom and Gomorrah is between Genesis uh, 18 and 19, when when you look at the whole Genesis account and the story of Lot and and Sodom and Gomorrah, you see that Lot is given a portion of land by his uh, uncle Abraham, and and he, uh, at first, is living near Sodom, and then you see him living um, in the plains of of Sodom, and then he's living near Sodom, and then he's actually living in Sodom and becomes an elder in in the town. And I I just, I'm honestly confused. I'm like, how come you're inching closer and closer and closer to the place that the Bible says here, you're tormented, old King James says, you're vexed in your soul every day. It's like, well, why did you move there then, you know? But anyway, there he is. And he's tormented in his soul day after day by what he sees and what he hears. Now, contrary to liberal theologians who will tell you that the real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was that the people were inhospitable. That's exactly what they say, okay? That is not the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because otherwise, I don't think inhospitality would be called, as it is here in verse 7, filthy conduct of the wicked. The history, of course, of Sodom and Gomorrah is homosexuality. And again, it's a very difficult day in which we live because it's hard to try to convince people of the truth that could set them free from homosexuality when our culture is saying not only is it legalized, but it is now celebrated. And so people are confused about, well, what really is true? And then Christians come along and say, well, the Bible actually says that it is a wicked thing. And then the world calls us haters. And sometimes we have to be willing to be called haters even though we should always attempt to present the truth in love, because to not tell the truth is one of the most dishonest things and disrespectful things to do. To remain silent 
is to not help people find liberty and freedom. And by the way, let me just quickly add, the sin of homosexuality is a sin, but so is heterosexual sin, uh, sex outside of marriage. And we need to recognize what is right sexual conduct and what is sexual sin. And God created sex as a gift to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in marriage and all other sexual expression outside of that definition is sin. That's God's, that's God's standard, okay? So if, if you're here today and you're like, yeah, yeah, homosexual people, yeah, they, they need to understand this is sin and how can I share the love of Jesus with them so that they can find liberty and forgiveness and healing and all this, okay, great. But are you, are you shacking up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend? Because you're a hypocrite if, if, if you think that, that they need Jesus and you don't. You know, if, that they need repentance and somehow you don't. If you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, move out. Because you, you're, you're not living in a pure way before God. So while we need to address what the text is here, we need to also address the text with, within the context and make sure that we're not being hypocritical about things either. Because it's important for us to understand sexual purity with the Lord. And in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, it says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That, provi- that, that applies to all of us. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So we need to all come humbly to the cross. And all of us need to recognize how our lives are being conducted before him. And I know I get it. A lot of people do things out of ignorance. Um, And people do things out of disobedience. So the ignorance argument, at least if you're here, has now been removed. (laughs) So now the only thing is disobedience. So we need to walk humbly before the Lord and in purity before God. But he does give this third example. So he says, the angels that sinned, the ancient world of Noah's day, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's day, folks were judged. And God's going to take care of false teachers as well. And then he basically says this in verse 9. He says, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So basically, verse 9 and this whole section, he's saying this. God knows how to judge the wicked, and God knows how to rescue the righteous. Because he, he rescued Noah and his family because they humbled themselves. They were right with God. Uh, God rescued Lot and his family. Well, Lot's wife turned back, became a pillar of salt. That's a tragic story. And from that day on, they could never ask for salt at the dinner table. It was a very touchy subject. But anyway, God always rescued the righteous and he judged the unrighteous. And that's the way it's going to be. Verse 10, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Uh, NIV says celestial beings. He's talking about the false teachers who they even will say disparaging things against angels. That's what dignitaries really means there. Whereas angels, verse 11, who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Peter's saying these false teachers will disparage angels 
And he says, and, and yet the irony is angels are, are much more powerful than these false teachers, and yet they don't say an accusing, disparaging thing about these false teachers before God, because God's going to take care of them. That's all for today's message in Second Peter on Cornerstone Connection. We're glad we had the chance to open the Word with you, and we pray it's been a blessing to you. Pastor Gary has more to share from this New Testament letter, but for now, you can explore his teachings on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll find a list of messages available there, and feel free to download and share them. We have a mobile app as well, and you'll find a link to be able to download online too. This is a convenient way to take the Word with you on the go and a great way to fill the pauses in your day. Do you live in the Leesburg area? If so, we want to meet you. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel for a time of worship, fellowship, and studying the Bible with Pastor Gary. Our services start at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. each Sunday. And please feel free to bring your whole family. We have child care available during all of our services. You'll find all the information you need about the church on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you aren't nearby or you can't make it in for one of our services, you can still join us virtually. We live stream each gathering on our website. With that, our time with you has come to a close. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time to continue studying through the book of 2 Peter right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not